And I think in our world today, across the board, whether you're in a Western civilized country or not, mm. in the Eastern countries, Asian countries, is that it makes two very specific claims. One about God and then another one about human nature. And the one about God is really interesting. It claims that there is a God, obviously. Right. And that I think is really controversial today because a lot of people are not interested in wanting a God, particularly in westernized countries. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith. It is a journey that you have to do yourself. It is not something you can pay someone else to do. It's not something that you can order out for, have delivered, or get, a chip. Or get a chipped for. It is something that you actually have to develop yourself, but we can come alongside you to encourage you, to challenge you, and to teach you to critically think for yourself so that you know what you believe and why you believe it. Mm-hmm. My name is Jesse Merrill. I'll be your host, and we can't do this without the salty pastor himself, Dr. <laughs> Douglas Peak. Well, everybody, I'm so glad you're here today, and I just want to make a promise to everybody that uh, uh, I'm going to be a little less salty today. Well, maybe not, but uh, I heard from people who, who listened to my Tuesday, and they said, boy, you were wired. <laughs> you he were wound ready. up. To go. <laughs> so, yeah, when you know that you could, you know, smell the manure through the <laughs> podcast, <laughs> Pastor is overdoing it. So, anyway, and all seriously, uh, seriousness, I want everybody to know that I'm just going to make sure that I dial it back a little bit. Not. <laughs> I was like, don't make promises you can't keep, Pastor. That's right. You're here to speak truth and try to encourage us to learn <laughs> and grow, and uh, this is part of that process. So on Tuesday, we introduced a new series titled The Bible, and we have a lot of questions, um, but we're in today's application day. On Thursdays, we do application, and I want to talk about a question, and that is, why is the Bible so controversial, Pastor? <laughs> well, you know, we talked about... Uh, a lot of those things in particular on Tuesday as we were reading about its claims that it is the word of God. And I think in our world today, across the board, whether you're in a Western civilized country or not, Mm. in the Eastern countries, Asian countries, is that it makes two very specific claims, one about God and then another one about human nature. And the one about God is really interesting. It claims that there is a God, obviously. Right. And that I think is really controversial today because a lot of people are not interested in wanting a God, particularly in westernized countries. Now you go to Eastern countries, like you have basically two large countries, types of countries outside of Western civilization. You have countries that are uh, Islamic based, and the Bible's very controversial there. You're not even allowed to read the Bible in many of those uh, countries because its claims about God are specific about his character. And that is the opposite of the character of Allah revealed in the Quran. Now, then you can go to India, you can go to China, you can go to Indonesia, these other places. And it's controversial there because it claims there is a God and like in India, uh, there's multiple gods, right? In China, you have ancestral worship in Buddhism and these types of things. So that that's why it's controversial. It's controversial in America because it says there is 
a God and here is the character of God. And I think what's really interesting is that if you step back for a second in a very pragmatic way and ask yourself, well, how is it that we know there is a God? And there's three basic ways that you know there is a God. The first way is revelatory, and that's the Bible. You know, you read the Bible and you just say, oh, okay, I I agree with the Bible. There is a God, and this is what he's like. That's called revelation. Uh, The next one is pure rationality. And then here's what's really fascinating is that a lot of philosophers and rationalists are realizing that atheism is actually more irrational than faith. Mm. And there's been a false dichotomy that's been raised and the false dichotomy is propagated by Sam Harris, uh, Dennett, uh, Bart Ehrman. These are leaders in the atheist movement. The the most visible one is Bill Maher, who is on HBO Mm -hmm. and he has his own show. And what he says is that, well, the, the false dichotomy is that there's reason, right? Which is rationality to them. And then there's faith. So faith to them is the absence of rationality or reason. This is a false dichotomy. And there's a philosopher out of Notre Dame by the name of Alvin Plattinga, who's done some of the best work on this. And he basically says the, the biggest irrational thing is how evolution and scientific materialism slash atheism feel that they're in the same camp when they're actually contradictory. They don't actually match up. They don't match up. And he, boy, it's really powerful stuff. It turned the whole philosophy world upside down when he wrote that book. He says, where the conflict really lies. And so I don't expect my audience to read the book. Um, (laughs) I I read the book. My son-in-law read the book and my son read the book. And so we all kind of geeked out on it. That was kind of fun. Now, the second way that you understand God is not in revelation, but in pure rationality is based on philosophy and the most sublime or significant or foundational question that all philosophers have tried to reason from is this simple question. Why is there something instead of nothing? Okay. Why is there something instead of nothing? Are we talking like big picture? Like why is there a universe yes. and not just a void? Yes. Okay. Why is there, well, why is there life instead of non-life? Why is there anything, any reality, any metaphysical ra- reality? Why is there time instead right. of no time? And that, that really comes down to, okay, the reason why there is something is some very basic rational thing. There's Kalam's cosmological argument, and this is basically how it's structured. It's pure rationality. Is everything that begins to exist has a cause. So everything comes into existence because of a cause. Okay. Do we live in a cause and effect reality? Yes. 100%. For every action, there is an... Equal and opposite reaction. Exactly. One of Newton's laws of physics, the entire reality, space-time in which we exist, is built upon this. Okay? So we also know that everything that comes into existence has a cause, right? Right. You came into existence. How did you come into existence? When a mommy and a daddy really love one another. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yes. Uh, when a mom and a dad, a male and a female get together and procreate, that creates a Child. life. Yes. Right? And so, okay, what 
happens when a composer writes a song? They put in effort and create. Yeah. For everything that comes into existence, There's it has a cause. a cause. There's a cause. So anything that begins to exist has a cause. That's premise number one. Nobody can argue that. There's nobody who can argue against that. You can't say, well, this existed, but it has no cause. Yeah. The only people who argue that are Hindus, right? And they believe in an infinite oscillating universe, which doesn't fit the science. Okay. All physics, but Posner and not, not Posner. What was his name? It started with a P they discovered the background radiation that basically said the universe has a cause. So that's the second premise is that the universe began to exist. So that would naturally, if you're thinking through this lead to the universe has a cause because that's exactly it right. Exactly. Okay. You that got it. Sense. Yeah. Everything that begin everything that begins to exist has a cause universe began to exist. Therefore the universe has a cause. So it has to have an uncaused cause. Now you're going to get on the internet. You're going to listen to people who talk about this and try to debunk it and all this kind of stuff. But these people are, are not serious people and their logic is not serious. Uh, they're, they're, uh, uh, what, what do you call them? They're fly by night atheists who think that if I say something over and over again with a lot of passion, that makes it logically relevant. Well, that's just not true. Serious atheists really struggle with debating, debunking this, okay. that thing, what they would say, well, there is an uncaused cause. That's just not God. But then you argue with them. Okay. Well, that's when we start stepping into that. You have to have more faith uh, yeah. as an atheist than you do. Yeah. As a Christian. Yeah. Frank Turk wrote a book on that. Dr. Frank Turk, he wrote a book says, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist because once you accept that pure rationalistic syllogism, and that's what that is, everything that begins to exist has a cause the universe has a cause or the universe began to exist therefore the universe has a cause so then you have to realize okay in order to create the universe space and time and matter and all this kind of stuff what does that uncaused cause what is infinite it's got to be out of space and time it's got to have all power it's got to have what is that and yeah what is not, that if it's not god then you're well, what you do is you, yeah, you, very... in order for that logically to happen, to be an uncaused cause, you start describing all of these attributes. Well, it'd have to have all power, omnipotent. It'd have to have all knowledge, omniscient. It would have to have uh, no beginning or end. And that means it'd have to be eternal. It's not constrained to time. It could know the future. It can know the past. It can know the present all at once. Right. You see, it knows, all... well, as you start listing all these qualities out, what are you describing? God. God. <laughs> That's what you're doing. You know, there's a really funny incident on uh, YouTube where Dr. William Lane Craig was debating an English philosopher who Dr. Craig made this argument. And then this guy thought he would use mockery. So he says, well, that's not God. It's just a computer. He says a computer created it. And so Dr. Craig says, well, this computer would have to be all knowledge. He goes, exactly. So it's a, it's a infinite computer, you know? And he says, it's an infinite computer computer that knows all things and does this. And he names all these qualities. And then Dr. Craig says, you just described God. <laughs> <laughs> so got him. he got him. And so, so that's Kalam's cosmological argument. The next one is this is it's called, uh, 
the moral argument. And the moral argument works like this. It's pure rationality. If there is no God, there is no objective morals or duties. Okay. okay. We've talked about this a couple times in the idea of if there's no God, then murdering people, pedophiles, all of these things theoretically are all fine because there's no thing holding us to a, a there's nothing point. objective. There's nothing objective. It's just whatever I feel is yeah. right. Therefore, if I feel like, well, I can be an atheist, stealing, then- I can be an atheist and say, gosh, theft and the murder of innocent people and the in rape is wrong. So I, as an atheist, atheists that say yeah, that. That's it. I can say that, but then Hitler, who is an atheist could say, well, killing Jews is right. Cause there's no objective authority. Right. So the whole system breaks down and that, well, it's nice that you as an atheist think that you're moral, but your system creates an immorality because the next atheist could come along and say, well, yeah, killing you is fine. I'm right. just going to do it. So if there is no God, there is no objective. And that's the key word objective morals or duties. Everyone believes everyone knows there are objective morals and duties, right? They're, they're objective duties. There's, there are things that are always wrong. No matter what it's a moral stance. It's objectively wrong. It is objectively wrong to kidnap and rape children for fun. Everybody agrees that is absolutely unequivocally wrong, no matter what. So now it's objective. So if there is no God, there are no objective duties or morals. There are objective morals and duties. Therefore God exists. So that's a pure rationalistic approach, right? Right. The third one is called pragmatism. So you could, you could say there is a God because of revelation, the Bible, or you could say there is a God through pure rationality, which are these arguments. There's actually five arguments, uh, rational arguments for the existence of God. And so, or you could use a third one. I only, I only brought up two, excuse me, of the five. Or what you could do is you could use what is called pragmatism. John Stuart Mills was a philosopher. He was a generalist. He believed in what he called utilitarianism as a working philosophy. It's it's nobody buys into it anymore. However, he did bring up this one good point is sometimes you have to look at the impact of something on a system and you can evaluate it from that perspective. And so what is the system we're in the universe and the world? We have a planet. Okay. We have thousands of years of human history. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what is the effect? Has there ever been a society or civilization built on a belief that there is no God? And you'd have to say, no, the only nation that ever tried to do that was communist Russia and it collapsed within 70 years. So it's really interesting that way. So those are the three ways in which we know there is a God. The Bible is so controversial because it is revelation. But what's really fascinating about the Bible is this, is that it employs every one of these arguments when it talks about God. It says there is a God because God revealed himself, right? I am that I am the burning bush, right? Okay. God revealed himself. So, okay. That's called revelation. But then as you go through it, right, it says in Romans that God's 
nature is clearly seen in the creation. So I am discovering that there is a God rationalistically with my mind by evaluating the universe in which we live. We also look at thousands of years of history. What is the impact on Western civilization of Christianity? Well, overwhelmingly positive. And we've talked about this in the past. So I think that's really why it's so controversial is because the Bible doesn't just say there is a God because I say so. The Bible also says there is a God because rationalistically you come to that conclusion and pragmatically you come to that conclusion. And people who do not want a God in their worldview hate it. So you're basically saying the reason that it's so controversial is because it's such great proof of the existence of God. Yes. The people that don't want to believe in God don't want it to basically be around because it refutes many of their arguments and their their logic and their philosophies and things yeah. of that nature. So, so if you have a library, right, and in that library it proves something that you hate, what are you going to do? Burn down the library. Right. Which we don't recommend. We do not encourage you burning down libraries. <laughs> no, but, but that's what people do. So right. that's what people constantly are attacking the Bible. Right. They're doing everything they can to destroy the Bible. Why? Because they don't want to have to accept the truth that's in it. And the, you can argue rationalistically, pragmatically, or revelatory from the Bible of the existence of God. So talk to me about this other... You had said there's basically two reasons why the Bible is so controversial. One yes. being it's basically proof of... It claims there is a God and then further proves that God exists. Yeah, multiple proofs. What is the second reason it's so controversial? Well, I think it it's very controversial because it has a very specific definition of what it means to be a human being. Okay. Okay, it, it basically discusses human nature. Okay. It's really funny because a lot of people will read the Old Testament and then they go, I can't believe in God because you have all this horrible stuff in the Bible. All These people in the Old Testament did all these things. And I just laugh because my perspective is that proves the point, Mm, (laughs) you know, that proves the whole entire, the old Testament and even stuff. And it proves the point that human nature is what flawed, right? That we can be altruistic, wonderful. We, we believe in love and peace and kindness. And then we can also be the most cruel and self-centered, narcissistic, evil human beings, sometimes all in the same afternoon. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's the, the description of human nature is unmistakable. And, the, and that no matter how hard we try, no matter how many systems we come up with, we can't solve this problem. You can, you can get a perfect law from God about how you should live, what you should wear, how you should treat everybody, what you should eat, and what you shouldn't eat, how to be holy and clean. And guess what? Can't do it. It's impossible. Paul makes this argument in Romans. He says, this thing was a burden. It was a burden because all it ended up doing was showing us how yellow our teeth really are. Mm. You know, and that's the old teeth whitening thing. It's like, well, if you want to whiten your teeth, just hold up a white piece of paper to your teeth and you're going... Oh my goodness, my teeth need some serious whitening. <laughs> right. And that's what the law did. It was the standard it, that showed human nature to be far more corrupt than we could ever imagine. And and what's really interesting is that if is is that all of our problems in society today can be tracked 
from this upstream notion of a false definition of human beings. And so I have two psychologists here. They're both clinical psychologists. One's Jordan Peterson. One's another gal. I think she also has a degree in psychiatry. And they're talking about the psychosis that a lot of young girls are experiencing and why that is. So I'd like everybody to listen to this video. With everything that you said there. So I would say about the, um, the psychic epidemic that's playing out in teenage girls we do see psychic epidemics in teenage girls, first or worst. They're the people who become anorexic. They're the people who self-harm. They're the people who um, went through these hysterical laughing episodes and so on, if you look back historically speaking. I don't think anyone knows exactly why, but it's a, an observable fact at this point. But also... I know why. Oh, you know why. I can why. tell you why. Yeah, go Well, on. I know some of why. Well, look, when boys and girls are given personality tests before they hit puberty. There's not a lot of difference in average level of negative emotion experienced. But as soon as girls hit puberty, their proclivity to experience negative emotion, so that shame and guilt and disappointment and fear and depression, is elevated markedly in contrast to men. And it's permanently transformed at puberty and it stays stable for the rest of women's lives. And so women reliably experience more negative emotion than men on average. Now there's wide individual difference and there's some men who experience more negative emotion than women, but we're talking about. And what that means, at least in part, is that the people, almost all the people who experience the highest levels of negative emotion, and that would include self-consciousness and shame, are female. And that kicks in at puberty. And That's so really then interesting. At pu well, at puberty too, kids have to restructure their identities in quite a major way. And that's especially true for girls because they have, first of all, it happens to them earlier, right? So they're less mature when nature comes calling, let's say. Plus, as soon as puberty kicks in, they have these elevated levels of negative emotion. And one of the things we know, this is so interesting as far as I'm concerned, is that if Terms that are reminiscent of self-consciousness load almost perfectly onto negative emotion. So there's almost no difference whatsoever between being self-conscious and, and experiencing guilt and shame and anxiety. And so if you add the stress of puberty and that physical transformation to the emotional transformation, and then you take an extreme, the extreme outliers on the negative emotion continua, it's all women, it's all young women. And we know as well from the literature on gender dysphoria that the individuals who experience gender dysphoria, first of all, don't have suicidal ideation or those sorts of symptoms any more highly than people who experience non-gender dysphoria psychiatric disorders. So it's a class of general psychiatric disorder. And if they're associated with negative emotion, that's gonna mostly affect young women. That makes such sense. And they turn it onto their own bodies as well. Like the shame and the uh, self-consciousness get turned onto their bodies. And in particular, their breasts. Yeah. It's not, it's not, yes, a, it's not yes. by chance that they're cutting their breasts off. Like you put, yes, you put well, the bad is, into your breasts and you cut it off. Well, it is, it is this self-consciousness at the body level. It's, it's clear. Okay, see what he's saying? I think it's really fascinating. Is he saying that that kids have about the same level of negative emotions, right? But they tend to pass. And you'll notice this with kids. Um, 
when they're young, but then they hit puberty and you see this divergent track. And what he, what he says is that the reason why girls are hit harder is because it's in puberty where you really start to become self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Now, self-conscious is a fascinating thing. First of all, they're becoming self-conscious of their bodies, right? Right. They are also becoming self-conscious of their relationships. But where is this self-consciousness of their body and self-consciousness of their relationships and self-conscious of their value come from? Well, it comes from the spiritual soul. And this is exactly what the Garden of Eden, the story there, is all about. Because what happened when Eve ate of the tree of good and evil and then Adam ate of the tree of good and evil, they became what? Self-conscious. Because God shows up, and what did God always do? Oh, he just walked in the garden. Right. And where were they? Walking in the garden. So God shows up, and where are they? They're hiding because they're naked. Yeah, and he says, well, why are you hiding? Because we're naked. Because we're naked. What is naked? It's shame. Right. It's that sense of shame. That Hebrew word for naked isn't just, oh, I'm running around my birthday suit. It's I'm vulnerable. You see, Mm -hmm. there's a sense of shame. And isn't it interesting is that that's recorded in the book of Genesis written almost 4,000 years ago. And we are seeing it play out in the psychological struggles of teenage girls in America today. That is interesting. I think it's, I also, um, I liked the part in the video when he talked about they're also hit earlier with it. And so because of, mm-hmm. of the puberty thing. And so we see them start to struggle with it far before the men start to struggle with it. But we all do struggle with this self-consciousness. But the it's interesting that the according to the record in the garden, the woman ate the apple first, then the man, and we all fruit. Just, we don't know it's fruit, an apple. Yes, fruit. Sorry, the fruit. <laughs> um, but then we see this exact same thing happen in how it plays out. The women experience this shame and self consciousness first, and yeah. then the men. And then the men do, yeah. And it ends up, every, you know, everybody. I, right. Some 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 scholars would say, well, really, the sin wasn't eating of the apple, you know, but it was in Adam blaming Eve for the problem. Because see what it did is that that showed I'm not just self-consciously aware. I'm willing to do wrong to cover up my my shame. My shame. And that's what we do. We, we blame and point fingers at people all the time. And so I think, I think what's really interesting is he's saying, look, these girls are facing this. Why, why is it? Well, the reason why is because we've changed the definition of what it means to be a human being. And one of the places that we've changed it is we've adopted this Freudian notion, which has been debunked, but general, uh, populace has adopted it. And that is, is that uh, sex and gender are separate. Sex is a, a thing. And then gender, your role, gender role is a social construct, mm-hmm. which is completely false because gender is rooted in sex. Right. And the way women think and the way women behave and their hormones are completely different than males. Right. right? And so... Uh, you can't treat them emotionally exactly the same. Sex is not malleable. It isn't. It isn't that you can just be whatever you want and think whatever you want. And so it 
it creates all kinds of psychiatric problems right. in these kids and that are growing up. And our society continues to propagate that. Our society has redefined what it means to be a human being, right? That you're not male, you're not female. Those are distinctions that are irrelevant. Uh, there's even curriculums right now in Washington state and in California and in Connecticut that say that when a doctor says you're, when you're born as a baby and the doctor says you're a male or female, the doctor is guessing. Mm. The doctor doesn't know. And it's like, okay, that's crazy. Yeah. That's, that's craziness. That's wacky. But it goes to a deeper definition of what it means to be a human being. And that is, is that, um, first of all, you're not created in the image of God because there is no God. And then the second thing that happens is that it begins to say that whatever you want, okay, whatever you feel, whatever you think, particularly in a sexual nature, is to be validated. Because mm -hmm. the reason why we feel guilty about sex, the reason why we feel shame about sex is because culture doesn't embrace it. Right. As opposed to what the Bible says, no, you feel shamed about it because you know that when you participate in immorality or any other types of sexual deviation from what it was designed for, that you are vulnerable and you don't attain to the divine. And that's why, see, that's why Adam said, well, I'm, a, I'm naked. That's why I'm ashamed. See, he knew he couldn't walk with God freely right. anymore. And so, so what happens is there are moral objectives, objective morals. And when we violate that, that's where our guilt and shame comes from. Consequently, what ends up happening is we dispense with that definition. We get rid of it. And then all insanity occurs. Here's my next video of true insanity. This is Isaac. The Methodist church has ordained their first drag queen to preach in their churches and listen to what Isaac has to say in one of his sermons. We are here to learn and to grow and to deconstruct and to reimagine what church can be, who church can be for, and how church can feel together. It can be a place unafraid to denounce queerphobia, a place unafraid to name the sin of racism. So he is uh, the first drag queen pastor ordained by the Methodist Church. And this is why most Methodist churches are leaving the Methodist uh, denomination and breaking mm -hmm. out on their own. It's a big controversy right now, and it's uh, gained a lot of, I mean, massive amounts of churches have left uh, because of these types of behaviors. And I think what's so interesting is that we can redefine church and we can make it into what we want. And the problem with that is that that's, that's craziness. And, and, and this, the, here, here's the issue. This person is taking the foundation of my faith and the foundation of millions and billions of other believers. And he feels he has the right to corrupt it, pervert it, and turn it into anything he wants. That is evil. Mm. And what's sad about it is the amount of people that will see that or are encouraging that. That's what happens when we redefine what it means to be a human being. And that is why the Bible will be controversial because it takes no middle ground on what it means to be a human being. Because until you accept who you really are, 
You'll never be free from the prison of sin and death and be made alive through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think the fact that he is is basically saying we can do whatever we want now and that's basically immediately yeah. blasphemous because it's like, no, you can't redefine what the church is and what it does because yeah. it's written in the Bible, which is why the Bible is so important because it's objective. It's not based on feelings or social change Correct. ideology. It is forever and eternal and it's an eternal truth and that's why people it's so controversial to people they don't want truth like he said we can make church into whatever we want it to be yes well thank you pastor so much for um giving us such an interesting discussion today (laughs) uh i think this will give us a lot to think about and a lot to talk about in the coming days as we head up till Sunday where we kick off our series, The Bible, Bible. and we hear and learn more from you. Thank you guys so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next week here on the Salty Pastor Podcast. Blessings. Blessings.